listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Oh man, I am so stoked to be up here this morning. I have not got to preach a little bit, so I'm, re- I'm ready to go. Is that cool? So, so we're in this we're in this series on our vision, and 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 we've spent this time this whole month. By the way, if you're visiting today, you picked a really cool series to visit on. We don't normally do this kind of thing. We normally go verse by verse through books of the Bible, but we've spent this month kind of reacquainting ourselves with our call as a church and and our vision and what we think God has has called us as a body as a family to do. And so, um, I am tasked today with kind of wrapping that up. And I had to promise the other pastors that I wouldn't do the pastor thing right now. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this before, but generally speaking, when there are two pastors in the same church and one of them preaches and the other one is ending the gathering, they will come up and they will, they will reteach the message, right? What, what Pastor Craig was trying to say. I won't say who's most guilty of that at Red Tree, but needless to say, I'm going to try and not do that today. Um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad to wrap this up. I, I, I don't know if you guys have been here for the whole series or if you've been listening to them online, but I would say this. If, if Jesus has taught me nothing over the last month, it has been this. I am so grateful to God for this family. This this church family is such a blessing and such a gift. As as one of your pastors, what, what I would love to say to you, if you hear nothing else this month, is this. I love you guys, and thank you. Thank you for being a part of this, for, for doing this with us. You guys have, have no clue how much this church is an answered prayer to my family. When I, when I think about the reality that this is the body, this is the congregation that my daughter is growing up in and getting to learn about Jesus with. It is such a gift. So thank you guys. Thank you. I love you a ton. We are, uh, we're finishing out today. So what we've, what we've done up to this point is we've walked through each of the rhythms of Red Tree, right? That's the word we use, the, the core convictions, the, the main things that we do as a church. What we've, what we've done up to this point is we've concerned ourselves with kind of the what and the how of our church, right? So if you remember, in the first week, Pastor Craig taught us out of Colossians 1 and talked about the supremacy of Jesus, the fact that in our church, everything comes back to the person, the life, the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is First and foremost, that is prime in everything we do. In the second week, Jesse taught us out of, out of Galatians 5 how uh, that kind of love that Jesus gives, that, that real Jesus love will always manifest itself in a radical kind of community, right? A kind of community where people come together, where they give of themselves for the benefit of others. And then last week, Pastor Mike taught us out of John 15. There we go. <laughs> I paid attention, I promise promise. And, and talked about how radical Jesus community will always express itself outward in the mission of God. So, so those are kind of the what's of Red Tree, right? What does Red Tree do? How do we do it? Well, Jesus is first and foremost in everything. We live life together with each other and with Jesus, and we seek, we seek to add more to the kingdom. We seek to be a part of of the mission. That's what we've talked about up to this point. What I'd like to do today today is switch kind of from the what and the how to the why. So we're going to talk about right the vision statement 
of Red Tree. Why do we exist? The, the, the reason here being, if someone were to sit with you over coffee and say, why do you go to this Red Tree church? Like, what's the deal that you could answer succinctly? Oh, well, this is why our church exists. This is why I'm a part of it. But what I want to do before we get to that, we're going to be looking at Philippians 2 today, so you can turn there if you want to. But before we get to that, I want to give you guys a little, a little something to keep in your back pocket for when we talk about those rhythms of Red Tree, that idea of how, what makes Red Tree a church, what makes it unique, what are the things that we focus on. If you want to be able to summarize those things really quickly and, and have an actual biblical understanding of them, I would point you to John 13, 34 and 35. This is, this is right after the Last Supper when Jesus is giving, having his last time with his disciples and he goes through several chapters of prayer and final instructions for them. And in that passage he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. If you memorize those two verses, if you commit those to memory, you will have in your back pocket the the existence of our church, right? The, the supremacy of Jesus, radical community, the mission of God is summed up in a new commandment I give you. It, it, it's in there because if you see this progression in what Jesus says in John 13, it is essentially this. I have loved you guys. That's what Jesus says to his friends, to, to his followers. I have loved you. As I have loved you, that's how you love each other. So, so Jesus is the foundation of this. He's the, the core of this, the root of this. He says, look at my example, how I've loved you, and by that example, love each other. So, so right off the bat, it starts with the supremacy of Jesus. And if you ask yourself, how did Jesus love his disciples? Well, he loved them immensely. He loved them unendingly. He loved them humbly. He loved them through service. He loved them through sacrifice. He loved them through grace. He loved them through training. And the, the, the love of Jesus for his disciples was complete and insane and immense. And above all, it was without the expectation of reciprocation. Jesus gave not out of a transaction... Jesus loved his disciples, not in a way where he said, oh, because you guys do A, B, and C, I'll do X, Y, and Z for you. No, Jesus loved his disciples. He loved his friends with no thought to his own benefit. He sought their benefit above his own. It was not a transactional love. It was a sacrificial love. And so what Jesus says is, listen, you love each other that same way that I love you. That never-ending, non-expectation, no tit-for-tat, just sacrifice and the benefit of the other love, you do that for each other and the world will notice. Right? As I have loved you, so I have to love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. When a group of people who know Jesus love each other the way Jesus loved them, people who don't know Jesus get to know Jesus. That's, that's the truth of it. That's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to synchronize ourselves, synchronize our life to the command of Jesus. As I have loved you, love one another, and more people will be invited in. Jesus, community, mission. So memorize that. Put that in your back pocket. But today we're talking about the vision statement. That's 
the what's. We're getting into the why. If you ever are really bored and you root through Red Tree's website, you'll find the About Us page and the mission statement, and, and we, we, we say it relatively often, right? We exist to glorify God by seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of Red Tree. This is the why of Red Tree. And what I would like to do is pick that apart for us, kind of phrase by phrase. But I think what will accomplish that better for us is to just study the Scripture and then see how that phrase is our best attempt at encapsulating some of the big truths of the Scripture. Which, by the way, I think that's important to note that we put language to stuff like this, right? We, we, we put all these things together and we say, oh, we have a vision, oh, we have rhythms, we have convictions, all these things. We use this language not because that language or that structure means anything, Those are simply tools to try and communicate the boundless love of Jesus and the truth of his revealed word. It's the only reason we do that stuff is is, is to help us sync ourselves up to this, right? Like these these things aren't anything of themselves. They are nothing if they are not connected to the word of God. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you you have, uh, if if you if you don't have a Bible, we have ones on the end there, uh, these house Bibles. We'd love for you to grab one of those and turn to Philippians. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please please take one of those as, as, as our gift to you. We want to make sure you guys have the Word available to you. I know a lot of you guys like to do your phone Bibles. Um, can we read this one today? Is that cool? Can we read it? Can we actually grab a Bible? And everyone's like, oh, shit, man. <laughs> can we actually read it? Is that cool? If you're on the end, can you grab some Bibles and pass them down? Because I, I want us to actually read this one. Um, and, and here's the reason. Philippians is a really special text to me. You can look to someone next to you if, you, if, you, if we need to share Bibles. It's cool. Um, Philippians is a special text to me. When I was in high school, uh, a, a group of guys and me memorized the book of Philippians together. Uh, and that sounds really spiritual, but I, I can't do it anymore. I, I had kept it for like three months and stopped practicing. But anyway, uh, the book of Philippians is, is really close to my heart because I spent a long season of my life just digging through it piece by piece by piece. And and, and so I'd like to do something a little special with the text today, or a little unique. Um, we're going to exposit the text, but I feel like the text we're going to dig into today in Philippians 2, um, yeah, it, it, it needs some exposition, we're going to do that, but I feel like this is a text that also really just needs some reflection and some illumination. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it for us, and then I'm going to pray to the interpreter of Scripture that he might illuminate God's Word to us. And we're going to sit for a minute, and I would encourage you guys, just look at this text in silence for a few moments. It'll be, it'll be awkward and painful because we don't normally do this kind of thing, but it'll, it'll be good. I want to encourage you guys to read over this text a few times, asking the Spirit that He might illuminate its truth to you, and then we'll expound on it together. So we're in Philippians 2, starting in the first verse of the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask in this moment that you would illuminate the text to us. You are our interpreter. You are our counselor. Spirit, speak to us from your word. Calm us, quiet us. Reveal to us the truth of your person, the truth of the gospel, that we might, that we might stew in that this morning. As we sit with this text, Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us, remind us the beautiful truth of who you are and what you've done. Jesus, we trust you for these things. We pray them in your name. Amen. Go ahead and sit with the text for a moment. God, you are good. You are so good. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for revealing. May the the meditation of our hearts, may the words of our mouth in this moment as our reflections on your word, may they be pleasing to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I love the idea that at some point in the near future, someone's going to be driving to work and they're going to pull up the Red Tree app and listen to this sermon. And they're going to get to this point and go, are they is it really going to sit for two minutes in silence? <laughs> and then they're going to be in their car driving. And they're going to be like, is this, 
Did the app break? Is it frozen? Is it, is it, is it still going? Whoever you are in the future, thank you. Thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> oh, man. I love this text. It's so perfect because it encapsulates the what's of Red Tree so, so perfectly, I think really succinctly, and it draws us really beautifully to the why of Red Tree. And so I'm going to do a couple minutes work to put us in context, uh, to, to put us to put the text in its historical place and, and remind us of a couple things that we probably didn't know on a cursory reading. And then we're going to walk through this kind of chunk by chunk and, and just see what it does for us. Um, the, the thing with the, the, the letter to the Philippians, this is one of Paul's letters to one of the churches he started. It's a unique book in the New Testament for a couple of reasons. The, the first one being this, the Philippian church was the first church in Europe. Uh, it was uh, culturally pretty different from a lot of the early churches that were started. Specifically, it was really different from the Jerusalem church and then to some extent the Antioch church that grew from that. It was a unique setting. Beyond being just a unique setting, Philippi as a city was really important. It's, it's interesting to note in Paul's journey that he actually landed in Europe in a city called Neapolis and then was like, nah, I got time for this. And went straight to Philippi because Philippi was a really important city. It was a fully recognized Roman colony, which what that means essentially for our purposes is that if you were born in Philippi, even though you weren't literally physically in Rome, you were given Roman citizenship by birth. And so the citizens of Philippi were incredibly patriotic people. Most of them were veterans or descendants of veterans. Uh, in fact, there were whole sections of Philippi that were given essentially as severance packages to good soldiers in the Roman army. So Philippi is an incredibly patriotic city. It's a city that's really wealthy. It's a city that, that enjoys a lot of freedoms that a lot of the world around it didn't enjoy. So Paul goes to Philippi and he plants a church there. And the church at Philippi is really important in church history for a couple of reasons. One of them is that they were a big financial benefactor of the early church. The other one is uh, they kind of set a really interesting standard for, for putting women in leadership. If you look back in church history, some of the early key leaders and benefactors of the church in Philippi were women. Uh, so I know some of you are like your complementarian senses are tingling, but uh, that is part of the history of the church of Philippi. In fact, um, Paul's relationship with Philippi was great. He had a much more congenial, a much more intimate, loving relationship with this church than he did with a lot of others. Even though they were struggling with some of the same false teachers, the same people who were traveling in trying to undermine his work, their response to the gospel was much more loyal. Uh, essentially, they, they pushed a lot harder against some of the false teaching that came after Paul. And so when you look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's really joyful. It's, it's much more congenial in tone than the rest of Paul's writing. In fact, the only things he really rebukes the Philippian church for is their sense of patriotism. He, he reminds them that their citizenship in the kingdom is primary over their citizenship in the empire. And then he, he, he kind of hits on them for a little bit of some interpersonal conflict with some of the female leaders in the church, uh, and, and talks about the desire, the need for unity in the church, that they should resolve those conflicts in a way that honors God. So this letter, very joyful. Uh, essentially what Paul is doing is reaffirming 
a lot of the same message he already gave them, knowing that there are these false teachers who are traveling around to some of the churches he planted. He's stuck in prison at this point. We don't fully know what point in Paul's life he wrote this letter. It seems pretty likely that he wrote this letter from prison in Caesarea when he was awaiting uh, his voyage to Rome. There's good evidence for that, although uh, some, obviously, that stuff's open to debate. But the point of it is, Paul is in prison and can't physically go to be with this church, and he knows there are false teachers going around trying to undo his work, and so he sends this letter to the church at Philippi, and, and there's a lot of stuff going on there. They've been going back and forth and taking care of him while he's in prison, and so he's thanking them for the work they've done, and he's encouraging them to stand strong in the truth. He's encouraging them to gather together in unity in the face of coming persecution or potential wrong teaching. And our text is right in the middle of that. What, what essentially happens is you, you, have, you have Paul here, uh, he's, he's calling them to greater obedience, right? He's saying, listen, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's some weird teaching and funky stuff going on. You guys need to stand firm in this. You need to be living out your faith obediently. And then at the same time, he kind of breaks and gives us this little treatise on, on belief. You need to come together in the mind of Christ. You need to be united in your belief in the gospel. I, I point that out to say, Paul gives us here this really cool image of the relationship between belief and obedience obedience, right? Bonhoeffer in his, in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, gives this beautiful image where he talks about how belief and obedience to Jesus, belief in the gospel and obedience to the commands of Jesus are totally inseparable. In, in, in the first or second chapter of the work, he gives this image of a pastor who's counseling someone and he says, if, if the person in the pastor's office is struggling with obedience, if their, their actions are not lining up to the commands of Scripture, to the righteous life, then the pastor should look where their belief is deficient. Rather than addressing the actions, he should look and say, oh, your beliefs are deficient, which is why these, these wrong, these disobedient actions are coming up. But on the other hand, if, if the follower, the person turns to him and says, no, 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 I'm struggling with my belief. I actually don't think I have belief. Then rather than addressing the belief, he should address the obedience and say, well, then take steps in obedience and see your belief come to life. The idea that belief and obedience are inseparable. They feed into each other back and forth. Paul kind of affirms that by sandwiching them together here, that the, the Philippians' belief in the right true doctrine of the gospel is intrinsically connected to their obedience that they actually live a life. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He talks about how, listen, even if I can't come to you, even if I only hear about you guys, I want to hear a good report that you're living righteously, that you're living in accordance with the commands of our Savior. So, so he puts these two things together. And I think, I think that's vital for us. I think that's vital for us because I think we can easily err by focusing on one of those two things over the other. If we put too much emphasis on obedience to the commands of Christ, then that creates legalism. 
It creates blind rote obedience apart from the grace of Christ. But if we, if we focus solely on belief and give people a pass on the actual obedience to the commands of Jesus and the call, the weightiness of the call of following Christ, if we give them a pass on that, then we cheapen the work of grace and we create licentious people who believe they are saved when eh, they might not be. There has to be a balance here. We must, we must rest in the finished work of Jesus. We must believe the truth of the gospel. And we must follow in obedience. Those things, those things live together. Salvation by faith apart from works also looks like something. It does. So Paul gives us this. And what, what I'd like for us to do here is work through this chunk by chunk and I, I think it's, it's going to bring some stuff into focus for us. So in the first two verses here, I'll go ahead and reread it. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But Paul starts here in, in the sections, he essentially says, listen, if this whole thing matters to you, if if this faith thing, if this Jesus thing, if this gospel that I presented to you, if this actually matters, if this actually bears any weight for you, then you guys need to be together in it. You need to be together. If this is real, you have to be together in it. There's there's a line you'll hear pastors say sometimes where they say the gospel of Jesus Christ is inherently personal, but it is never private, right? Right? If, if this is real, if this affects you, you guys have to be together. You have to be, you have to have each other's back. You have to be united. And then he goes on to describe what that actually means, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant of yourself than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, if this matters to you, you need to be together. And when I say you need to be together, I mean you need to really, really love each other. You need to love each other in a way that's, that's insane. You need to love each other in a way that values the other more than yourself. He literally says that, right? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. To love each other with such a humility that you look at the church around you and you say, I legitimately care about your benefit and growth more than my own. In, in my humility, I want your benefit above my own. You can, and, then, and then I love this. This is yours in Christ Jesus. You can have this mind. You guys can be so synced up in your hearts and your minds that you actually love each other in Christ. In Christ, that kind of unifying love can exist, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. And then when we get here into basically from verse 5 on, there's this beautiful thing. Essentially, Paul breaks out into song while he's writing. Some of your Bibles will actually set this part off and kind of show it that way. But, but Paul, he, he, he's talking about the unity of the church. He's talking about the reality of radical Jesus love kind of community. And it affects him in such a way that he literally just starts, starts worshiping as he's writing. He quotes this early hymn of the church. The only title that's survived from antiquity today is the Christ hymn. He, he gives us this beautiful image of the incarnation and the work of the gospel. He brings together who Jesus is and what he, what he was in this, in this just flowing, beautiful language that culminates in, in just worship and the glory of God. He, 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 in giving this song, he essentially shows why having the same mind in Christ can actually result in that kind of radical love. Read this, read this with me. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There, there's, a, there's a weird thing to this language here, but, but church, I want you to, I want you to hear this. The the love of Jesus is so selfless, it's so focused on the other, that when Jesus looked at the gospel mission before him, he did not see even his deity as something to be held on to. Though he is the fullness of God, he did not see it as a thing to be grasped. Jesus' love is so sacrificial, so sacrificial, that he holds everything with open hands that others might benefit. What? Can we reflect on that for a moment? The God of the universe cares enough about you, about us, about selfish human beings, piles of meat and blood that walk around for 70 years and then die. The God of the universe who created atoms and stars cares about us enough that he holds everything with open hands. What? That does not seem real. That that makes no sense. Why? Why would he do that? That is, that's none of us. None of us. None of us would do that. We just wouldn't. We're not that loving. Look, look how it keeps going. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The, the literal word there is imagine, imagine someone holding a pitcher of tea and pouring it out. Jesus emptied himself. His, his love for us is so vast, so astounding, that he didn't, he held even his very identity with open hands, and when the mission called for it, he poured it out and found himself in the form of a man. 
Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that thing we celebrate at Christmas, the advent of God. I, this sounds weird to say it this way, but, but I think this is really important for us. The suffering of Jesus did not begin at the cross. It did not begin at the garden. It did not begin at the betrayal. The suffering of Jesus began the moment he emptied himself out for you. The God of the universe, the eternal God who created all things, who sustains all things, allowed himself to become a baby. Think about that. The God of the universe in that moment went from being everywhere to being somewhere. He went from knowing everything and controlling everything to being totally dependent. The God of the universe went from being all-powerful with everything in existence in subjugation to him to being a crying baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes who really just wanted to be fed and probably needed to be changed. That's what God did. Can you imagine the suffering of that? To, To move from perfect unity, perfect eternal existence to being a little helpless baby, dependent on little sacks of meat that live for 70 years and then die. That's insane. He he was found, being born in likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. The the God of the universe worthy of all praise, the God of the universe in complete control and sovereign lordship over everything, humbled himself and lived on earth as a human being. He took on flesh. He lived through flu season. He did all those things humbled himself. And I love, I love what Paul says here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Do you ever reflect on the obedience of your sweet Jesus? We, we tend to think of Jesus as, as this, this force, right? He's so powerful and he's in complete control. And we think of his sovereignty and his divinity and his wisdom. But Jesus's life was really defined by humble obedience. The God of the universe submitted to God the Father and poured himself out and was found in human form. The God of the universe submitted to the work and the call of the Holy Spirit. And followed him where he was told to go. The God of the universe. The God of the universe submitted to God the Father and followed him to death. A miserable, torturous death. This is the obedience of our Jesus. His his humble life was shown to be what it is. It was shown to have that kind of loving humility by the fact that the God of the universe who had every right to demand every piece of worship and respect and submission, chose to live humbly and obediently. Man, I'm not going to lie. I love you guys a ton. 
I don't love you that much. I know that's funny, but I'm dead serious. I really don't. To, to undergo that kind of humiliation and that kind of suffering, I don't love you that much. But Jesus did. Jesus does. He, he was so loving and so humble that he gave of himself and he lived a life of suffering and sacrifice of loss that others might be benefited. And he was obedient to the end. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, do you realize that Jesus died on the cross because he chose to die on the cross? He said, no one takes my life. I freely give it. When we, we like to think of the physical suffering of Jesus, and you should reflect on that, but as you reflect on the physical suffering of Jesus as he was tortured and whipped and beaten and crucified, remember that by his joy, the very atoms that made up the molecules, that made up the cells, that made up the muscles that allowed that arm to whip him, Jesus was in control of that. As the sovereign God of the universe, it was by his pleasure that those atoms continued to exist that allowed those Romans to whip him. This is the God we serve. Totally sovereign, and yet lovingly humble. Quiet. He did not open his mouth. As a sheep led to the slaughter, he endured. He endured that. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scripture tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, right? Jesus in his immense love experienced that life, that humility, that sacrifice, that loss, and that is enough. It is enough that when the work was done, God said, it's done. And then he exalted him and he lifted him up. And it says all of creation acknowledges the sufficiency of that work. Beloved, the scripture teaches us that there will come a point when every single atom in creation will acknowledge the sufficiency of the powerful love of our Jesus. That there will come a point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All of the creation is groaning in anticipation to the day when it joyfully celebrates the supremacy of our Jesus. From the neutron stars to the atoms, from the believers to the non-believers, from the righteous to the convicts, from the Pope to the atheists, from the people in this room to Satan himself, they will fall on their knees and they will declare that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Lord of all creation. Amen. Amen. That is the truth of the gospel. That love is sufficient. That love is sufficient. That work is sufficient. The gospel work of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient. And all of creation will acknowledge this. All of creation. And why? To the glory of God. To the glory of God. Beloved, this, this is what we're talking about.
The love of Jesus is so powerful, is so immense, is so indescribable that the choices Jesus made to love and serve his creation are so impactful that all of existence cannot get away from them. It will be forced to acknowledge them. Whether joyfully and willingly or whether not willingly, all of existence will rally itself around the amazing and measurable love of Jesus. It will. To the glory of God. John Piper's written a lot about the glory of God. Big surprise. I find his work helpful. And the reason I find it helpful is because I find often one of the biggest roadblocks I hit with people when I talk about the gospel is this aspect of God's glory. I I hear often people say, well, if the whole deal is about God's glory, then it's really not love. He's really just super self-centered. And he's really just playing out this whole thing so that we'll have some kind of weird guilt complex and thank him for the thing he did to us. Hear that often. The glory of God is this weird trick and it shows shows why he's not actually loving. He's actually totally self-centered. And I, you know, whatever, I get that. But it's obviously not true. It's, It's a misunderstanding of what is meant by the glory of God. You see, that would be the case if I were God, right? If I were God and all things were to my glory, it would be because I'm super selfish and I want credit and I want to be awesome and I want everyone to pat me on the back and tell me how great I am. But luckily for you guys, I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And the glory of the one true God is the most amazing thing. Uh, Piper, Piper talks about how glory is a hard word to discuss because it's closer to the word beauty than it is to the word basketball. Right? If you don't know what a basketball is, you could, someone can explain it to you, and even though you've never seen it, you'll kind of know what it is, right? But beauty is not like that. Beauty is this word where you kind of have to point to it and go, that's beautiful, and that's beautiful, and that's beautiful. And if you point to enough things, then you kind of get a shared sense of what beauty is. The glory of God is, is similar to that. It's not something you can just wrap up in a neat definition and you'll fully understand it. It's something we have to point to over and over and over until we get a shared sense of awe at its magnificence. But I'm going to do my best real quick. Isaiah 6 connects and it, 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 it kind of brings together this concept that we see through all of Scripture. There's a song the angels sing to God in his throne room in Isaiah 6, and it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Scripture, the holiness of God can never be separated from the glory of God. And essentially the reason is because the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. When God's holiness is known, when God's holiness is experienced, God is glorified. So in a sense, God's glory is the experience of his holiness. We glorify God when we acknowledge, when we experience, when we taste his holiness. God's holiness is his otherness. It's the aspect of God that is set apart from the creation, that is other, that is distinct, right? I'm not Jesus, and you're thankful that I'm not, because he's not like us. He's better. So if you ask yourself, okay, so if the holiness of God manifests, experienced, that's the glory of God, then then what is the holiness of God? What is it that sets him apart? That's, again, it's hard to say, because he's very, very, very other. It's not like describing a basketball. But the, the best thing I can give you guys is this. The love of God is so different 
from the love of this world. It is so other. It is so not like us. Jesus loves in a way that we do not love. We try and compare it to things, right? We say, oh, well, Jesus loves me kind of like the way I love my kid. Man, I hope not. Because I get really mad at her when she's annoying. I'm not even joking. That's confession time. I really hope Jesus loves me better than I love my kid. Well, the love of Jesus for us is like, like the beautiful love of, a, of spouses. Man, I hope not. Because I get really selfish with my spouse. And I get really manipulative <laughs> when I want to be lazy and I want her to do stuff for me. I really hope God loves me better than that. That's where this falls short. The, the love of God is indescribable because there's nothing we can compare it to. I can tell you it's kind of like how I love my daughter in the best sense, and it's kind of like how I love my wife in its best sense, and it's kind of like how I love my family in its best sense, and it's kind of, but it's just kind of like it. It's just kind of like it. The love of God is so other. It's so powerful. Think about the text we just read. The love of Jesus is so immense and so powerful that all of existence is revolving around it. That is, that is insane. That is big. That is grand. That is untouchable. That is indescribable. That love of God. Man, that is other. There are obviously a myriad of other aspects of God's holiness, but for our purposes, let us rest in this truth. Jesus loves us in a way we cannot fully understand. This is the holiness of our God, who loves us in a way that is totally other, loves us in a way that is so foreign it does not seem real. Jesus loves his creation with an immensity and a weight that it is hard to fathom. So, when we say, man, we live for the glory of God, what we're saying is, man, we live that more might experience the amazing love of our God. Because by experiencing and acknowledging and declaring that love, we are making known His holiness. We are manifesting His glory. God's glory is made known when His holiness comes to bear in His love for His creation. So yes, 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 we exist for the glory of God, and there is nothing self-serving about that. The love of God is focused on the other. It's focused on the benefit of those around. It is not transactional. The love of God is amazing. It is the best thing you can ever taste or experience. That is what glorifies Him. That being known. So, when we say, well, we exist to glorify God by, by seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course we do. 
Because Jesus' love is so insane and so immense that you can't experience it without having it do something to you. The whole of existence revolves around this love, and to taste that love is to be changed. So we, we exist that more might experience that. That their lives might be transformed by the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. That they might experience His love and more might be drawn in and the kingdom might, might grow larger and the table might be more crowded and God might be more glorified. That is why we exist. Come on, church. That's the only reason we exist. How could we exist for anything else? If, if that love of Jesus is that real and that powerful and that weighty, what else could we possibly do with our time that would not be a complete and utter waste? The love of Jesus is everything. Is everything. Bonhoeffer, in his, in his same book, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about how, how there, and again, he's speaking to a very specific context. He's speaking to the Lutheran church in Nazi Germany. <laughs> So there's a whole lot of weighty social stuff going on there. But, but he, he gives this image where he says, our churches are filled with people who long to know Jesus, and yet something about our liturgy is blocking the way for them to know him. Not that they don't want to be a part of the church, not that they don't want to be, but they're there to meet Jesus, and somehow in our congregations they're not meeting him. And he was calling the denomination of which he was a part to, to essentially to, to, to reform, to repentance, to change. But the image there is so important for us. It's so important for us. Church exists for one reason and one reason alone, that more people might know Jesus, that, that more might be included in the kingdom, that, that, that amazing, wonderful love of God might be made manifest and known, and God might be glorified. Come on. That's the only reason. If anything we do gets in the way of that, it's not the thing we should do. So how do we do that? Well, we put Jesus first and foremost and center in everything. He is supreme. We, we do our best to hear the new commandment of Jesus and to love each other as Jesus loved us. And as we seek to love each other that selflessly, that sacrificially, then the people around us begin to notice. And as we continue to declare the supremacy of Jesus and the immensity of his love, and we continue to love each other that same way and show the world that there is something different, more will come into the kingdom. Because the human heart longs for that. The curse of this world has so distorted what true love is. It has brought about death and distortion and hurt and pain and suffering and things that should not be. And when the love of Jesus is declared to a hurting and broken world, there are souls that cry out to experience that. Beloved, that is why we are here. We are here because Jesus loves us in ways we cannot comprehend. Ray Ortland is a theologian. And uh, he, he wrote this little book called The Gospel. It's part of like this pastor's training thing. He tweeted the other day. It was, it was interesting. He, so he quotes, he quotes uh, the, the, the children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me. And he says, puts it in quotes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And then after that, he just says, well, that about sums it up. 
That about sums it up. Everything we do, all our theology, all our programming, all our discipleship, every, every aspect of our church, all of it comes back to this truth. Beloved, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And that phrase is so weighted. There is so much in that. The love of God is immense. The love of God is so wonderful. It is, it is like trying to drink from a fire hose. You can't do it. It just pushes you back. It's more than we can even take in. The love of God is enough for all of creation. The love of God is grand enough that all of history revolves around it. The love of God is enough to break any curse. The love of God is strong enough to raise any dead. The love of God is powerful enough to restore anything broken, to free any captive, to right every wrong, to restore the whole of creation. Beloved, it all comes back to the love of Jesus. It all comes back to that. So I say this. Jesus loves you. That pretty much sums it up. That's it. That's the truth of the gospel. And obviously there are corollaries, but that's it. Jesus loves you in ways you don't even know. Ways that we can't even comprehend. So, let's do this. Let's do this. let's, Let's come together as a church and let's be about this. Is is there anything you can imagine more worthy of your life than the love of Jesus? Can you you come up with something right now, be it your dreams, your family, your aspirations, that is more worth your time and energy and sacrifice than the declaration of the amazing love of our God? Beloved, it does not exist. Let's do this. Let's come together. Let's covenant our lives together. Let's seek to love each other as Jesus loves us. Let's daily rest in this love of Jesus. Let's reorder and reorganize the priority of our lives around this amazing love that we might declare it everywhere we go and more might be included in the kingdom. Let's do this. Beloved, I encourage you. I encourage you. We've spent this whole month talking about who our church is, what we're called to, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff is good. You should get plugged in. You should serve. All those different things. But ultimately, ultimately, we're here because Jesus' love is worth being here. Jesus' love is worth the cost. It's worth the sacrifice. So let's be all in. Let's come together as family Let's, let's actually do what Mark 3 describes. Let's actually view each other through the blood of Jesus as family. Let's sacrifice for each other. Let's love each other in a way that actually seeks the benefit of the other. And, and when people miss that, and they jump ship, and they run, and, they, and they're, not, they're not in this the way you're in this, and it hurts, and you feel betrayed, do it anyway. It's worth it. 
It is worth it to be together in the love of Jesus. Let us, let us covenant ourselves together. Let us love each other and let us serve this world. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a city in desperate need of the love of Jesus. Come on. Let's, let's stop messing around. Let's, let's come together in this. Let's rest in the work and love of Jesus. Let's love each other as Jesus loves us and let's tell the world around us that Jesus loves them. Jesus, you are really, really good to us. You're really, really good to us. God, every, every phrase we can come up with to try and expound on your love and thank you for it falls so short as to be embarrassing. Jesus, may you, may you burn into our hearts the reality of your love for your creation. God, may you be glorified in this church. God, may we experience your boundless love in such an intense way that your holiness is manifest and your glory grows. Jesus, may you move and convict hearts. May we genuinely reflect on the reality of our faith. May you illuminate our idols, the self-worship we have, the selfishness we have, all the areas where we seek to love the way we want to and we seek to project our sinful, flawed love onto you. May you shine those with such a spotlight that they are shown for how weak they are. Jesus, crush our idols. Kill our love of self. May we be a people who genuinely pour ourselves out for those that you have put in our lives. May we love without a thought to transaction or reciprocation. May we give for the benefit of others. May we live lives that are humble and obedient. And Jesus, through, through our flawed and sinful mirroring of you, may you invite more into the kingdom. Jesus, please, may you bring more into the kingdom. This is too good. This is too good to be holed up inside a church or inside a gospel community. Jesus, may your love overflow and abound in this city, and may you draw the dead to life here. God, may we see your supernatural work. May we see the fruit of your work, and may you draw more to life. Jesus, you alone are capable of this. You alone have made this gospel true through your perfect life and your obedience and your sacrifice and your immenseless love. God, to you be the glory. May we live in that today. Jesus, we love you. We trust you because you're trustworthy. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.